Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Black Relations. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fajimi. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, you have a Black matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine our Black relations. Whether you are Black, white, or brown, trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening. Come along. Our guest today is Dr. Sue Sobot, the Provost of Walden University with a student population of over 50,000. Just for the records, I'm an alumna of Walden, so it's really exciting interviewing my Provost. Sue is responsible for academic administration, instructional design and curriculum development. More interestingly, though, Sue was a captain of the U.S. Coast Guard for 26 years. I'm sure the listeners would like to know about that experience as well. Dr. Subok is white, a business executive, and also a leader in a unique industry classified as higher ed. So thank you so much for coming on Reimagining Black Relations podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. Do you mind sharing a little bit about yourself, anything you feel comfortable sharing so that the listeners will know the person behind the title? Sure. Well, I I have a bit of what might not be considered a traditional route to higher education with that Coast Guard background that you talked about. So I I am a graduate of the Coast Guard Academy. Um, Many are familiar with the Naval Academy. The Coast Guard has one too. It's, It's in Connecticut. And I I served on active duty in the Coast Guard for over 12 years after I graduated from the academy. And I I left active duty really to pursue a career in teaching. Uh, I knew I wanted to teach while I was at the academy my whole life. I really just wanted to be in education. And uh, it seemed like my pathway in the Coast Guard to doing that at the the academy um, was cut off a little bit for me there. And... So I went for it, and I moved into a an adjunct faculty role for the local community college, and so I basically just started over, <laughs> and um, and I worked at that community college for about um, 14 years, going from adjunct to being their chief academic officer as well in those 14 years. Uh, I earned my PhD along the way in instructional design for online learning because uh, it was really growing at that time. And also, as I was in the military, I was taking classes via online learning, and I was really just um, so excited about an opportunity that as I was bouncing around the country in the military, living in one place or another, my classes went with me. And it was a huge opportunity for me, which I was so excited to get involved in sharing with others. So uh, when I left that community college and came to Walden six years ago, I started in uh, the instructional design area and served in other roles um, within Walden and, until my recent appointment as the chief academic officer. So it wasn't a straight route to this, but um, what a fun one. <laughs> Indeed, that's actually very impressive. So where did you, where did you grow up or where were you born? I uh, am a Pittsburgh native uh, from Pennsylvania and uh, therefore very much a sports fan uh, to go along with that. And, um, and that's a really interesting question you ask because um, you know, I think that it, it, it has a lot to do with who I am. Pittsburghers are a little gritty. Um, you know, it's a steel town and, um, you know, you, you work your way through things in a certain way when you're, when you're from that city. And, 
and it definitely has shaped my life a little bit. So thank you for that question. I appreciate it. Sure, most definitely. So let me ask you, what was your first encounter with racism? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I think that most of my encounters with racism have not been what people would consider to be overt encounters. So um, the the concepts of systemic racism and um, implicit bias and those sorts of things where you just get a sense that that something is different and, and maybe not right more than some overt act um, that, that jumped right out. And so I would say, you know, I can't point to a moment where I recognized um, racism in our, in our country or in my immediate environment um, as a, as an, because of some singular event uh, per se, but more a series of events where you say to yourself that there's some kind of inequity or uh, disparate treatment because of a, a confluence of events or systems that are influencing decision-making. Yeah, so, you know, it's really interesting. I think that probably um, in hindsight, looking at it, the, you know, there's a very conscious effort within the military to look at diversity. And um, interestingly, I would say for, for myself, issues of gender diversity certainly played into my experience in the Coast Guard as well. And so probably at my first experiences of thinking about diversity in the Coast Guard were related to gender more than race, where as the, uh, off sometimes the only female within a unit, you're assigned the role of diversity officer because somehow you must be an expert on diversity because you're diverse. <laughs> um, because you're not like the rest of us. Um, and so um, I think those kinds of things, uh, you know, tended to happen. But again, it's kind of like when you're doing it, maybe you don't recognize it for what it is. And, and so I'll say one thing that perhaps I didn't recognize until much later. And, and um, you know, they're, they're working this through in, in various ways across the, all of the military services now is that um, there wasn't the diversity of leadership that you might have expected. And some of that was that um, the, diversity, the, the, the diversity pipeline, if you will, that when you don't bring in as many people that aren't of a certain demographic, they also can't rise to the level of leadership. They don't have the mentors that they need. They don't have the examples that they need to, to see their way through. And so what starts out even as a smaller um, group of people, it also dwindles faster because there's nothing to lift them up um, in, in the ways that, um, that they might need that are different from, um, you know, what everyone else is getting, <laughs> because it's there by nature. Absolutely. Let's explore diversity and racism a little bit more. How would you define it, just in your own terms? How would you define this phenomenon that is now being exposed to the whole world. Yeah, well, I think this is a really difficult one for us right now because I think what we're dealing with is um, uh, I, the, the more difficult challenge in my mind right now is understanding the, the concept of anti-racism. That, you know, we've talked a lot about what is racism, and I, and I think that um, that perhaps understanding that is also critical to people understanding what it means to be anti-racist. And so this idea that 
because I don't overtly do anything that is racist means I'm anti-racist is just sort of a false narrative. <laughs> it's, it's not. I'm, so maybe you're not racist, but that doesn't make you anti-racist <laughs> at the same time either. And so in some ways, um, thinking about what, what constitutes racism, I, I have to ask myself sometimes, am I making sure that I'm anti-racist? Not that I'm not being racist, but that I'm consciously being anti-racist. And so sometimes just by not doing anything, that can constitute racism per se, but definitely not being anti-racist. And so I think in some ways, shifting the narrative a little bit here to, to not talking about um, what is racism and how do I avoid being racist is really not necessarily productive to the conversation about how do we end racism by being anti-racist? <laughs> so I kind of flipped that question around on you a little bit, but I think it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and um, I ask it because I wanted to get your perspective of what it is based on what you've said previously, that it was a combination of smaller things shaped together to form what racism is to you, and I'm trying to get a good gauge of do we actually know what it is? Because depending on who you ask, racism comes in different shapes, colors, sizes. How does that even look? What is it? And if we don't know what it is, we won't know what to do about it. So we need to know what that thing is. And then how do we say, okay, no, we cannot have this behavior anymore. That was the reason why I was going that route. As you know, you can use different methods to resolve an issue. And without you really understanding the core, the why of the issue, resolving it is almost a mute point because your resolution might actually be negating what you're trying to do if you don't have the full understanding. Yeah. So I think that for, for me, it's a, it's a really deep question right now because I think that um, for the most part, people in the higher education industry would like to say they're not racist, that they that they, they provide equal opportunity, certainly we're required to provide equal opportunity. And so most folks have, have gone about that. So I think it's, it's more, um, again, um, less overt and more about the systems. So systems that, that don't examine themselves against um, race and ethnicity and differences. So do your um, faculty development programs work for all of your faculty or just the majority uh, and and therefore they're not serving the the faculty that we need to re reflect our student population so um, when you evaluate your faculty programs are you are you evaluating them by your, your demographics of race and ethnicity and gender and, um, and 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 other factors too but certainly um, you know right now today I think we know that um, we have a lot of issues in moving forward with initiatives that align the faculty representation across race and ethnicity with our student representation across race and ethnicity. And, and it's a, a very big thing. And so if you're not evaluating your faculty uh, development and your faculty um, uh, uh, evaluations against um, race and ethnicity, then you're, you're probably not doing what you need to do. And, and you can apply that same sort of thinking to your students. You know, are you looking at student success and student progress and retention and 
um, and finances across values of, of race and, and ethnicity. So um, I think it's really important that uh, in our industry, we make sure to not act as if uh, the, the aggregate data works for everyone and that we're applying those kinds of approaches to everything that we evaluate. Higher ed is all about evaluation. We love metrics, we love data, we love all that. Um, and so we should embrace that, you know, that we want to critically examine for which populations can we make improvements um, or, or who are we not serving the way we need to serve with the systems that we have. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunity there. I'm thinking now as you are pulling the metrics, you're trying to interpret what you need to do with those metrics. Do you think that as you come to a resolution on what needs to happen. Hypothetically, uh, we need to serve more racially diverse groups. And I'm thinking from the perspective of resources. Resources are very limited. Funds are very limited. If you're going to serve the Black population and the brown population more, does that take away from the white population, knowing that resources are very scarce? I think that um, my answer to that is that, um, you know, we try to look at the effectiveness of our institution and apply the resources to areas to be sure that we're being effective as an institution in learning outcomes and graduation. And um, if we're not putting resources to the areas where we could influence um, the black and brown success rates, um, we're not a very effective institution. And so it, as we as we wrap the whole discussion around strategic planning and all of that sort of thing, you have to look at um, where we have opportunity to be a more effective institution. And in many cases, that will take you to subgroups of populations and, and often around race and, and ethnic groups. And so when you can line up the right thing to do with good business, it, it seems um, nonsensical to not want to apply resources to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Many of the contributors on the subject are proposing uh, education to be a starting point, or at least a significant step to move us in the right direction. How do you develop curriculum to do this? And how long does it even take to pull that together and begin to implement it? Yeah, well, so I, I think this is really critical that... Um, you know, certainly within the industry of higher ed, we we definitely need to be thinking about how do we create, uh, how do we help students to ask good questions and to listen. I think right now the curriculum most people good listening curriculum, and um, to understand how you um, open your mind and open your heart, <laughs> and it starts with opening up your ears. And so, um, you know, I think that as we um, think about the job of, of um, our society and the job of higher ed going forward, um, you know, you don't see many places that have outcomes that say develop critical listeners. But I don't know that there's a time more in our history where we need some critical listeners <laughs> and people who are willing to just, you know, seek first to understand. And, and, and certainly I think then people should seek to be understood as well. <laughs> um, but if everyone took the thought of, I'd like to first understand and open the ears 
um, and that higher ed played a role in doing that. Um, and not just from the typical voices, not from the faculty standing in front, um, but from each other. I mean, we have very diverse classrooms and um, especially at a place like Walden where we work mostly with working adults, we have people with broad experience and, and backgrounds that um, our faculty may not have and can't represent. And so opening up a space where um, students feel comfortable to, um, to first listen and then also to engage, um, I think um, is, is really um, the, the, key, the crux of where I, I think we need to make a really concerted effort. And, and you would think that if you started with the very concrete concept like that one, that it doesn't have to take years to develop that kind of curriculum. It's not heavy content. It's really about your affect and how you behave in a classroom and how you encourage students or discourage them <laughs> um, as the case, and, being, and really being willing to engage in, in looking at that deeply and, and, and examining yourselves. What I actually like best, or at least I heard two words from you that stuck in my head, critical listeners. I think we do a good job of critical thinking, but not critical listening. Listening, it's a different ballgame entirely. And I agree, it might be easier to implement, but how do you begin to see the return on that investment? Yeah, so I do think that's um, an, an interesting uh, question. So I think that uh, as you look to who should be helping us in devising this. The other thing that comes to mind is that often in academia, we're very siloed. You have your psychologists who sit over here and your educators who sit over here and your communication professors who sit over here. And I think as we look to developing curriculum that gets to these kinds of skills and opportunities, you have to put all of those people in the room together. And your communication professor is going to tell you one thing that answers the question that you're asking. The psychology professor is going to tell you something else. Your sociology professor is going to tell you. And somehow you, you need to put them all in the same room, respect their varying <laughs> viewpoints as well, and, um, and find that core that is critical to everyone, but allow for the disciplines to pull their own approaches in you know, so when I look at our human services program, you know, they've taken, you know, what we've poured into that mix and they've come out with the concept that we want to um, achieve outcomes around cultural humility. And that's how they've come out of that conversation. And what's more humble than listening to someone? <laughs> and, and so as you, um, as you think about um, sort of the it, you know, you diverge your thinking, you put all these ideas in, and then you converge around common concepts, but then you allow for divergence again that's very discipline specific. And so I think that you have to first model it and allow that listening to happen internally um, within your own groups before you can start to engage with external audiences in a similar fashion. <laughs> so I think you just hit on one of the game changers for me personally. And just the way you describe how to even develop this is very thoughtful. I'm hoping that we can get to that point. I'm now thinking about 
those executives that are placed in charge of diversity, equity, inclusion. I think there's an opportunity there from higher eds like yours to put something together for these executives to implement what they're called to do. How can you help or institutions such as yours or higher ed? How can we help them to be successful? Otherwise, what's going to happen is within a year, this thing will kind of fade out. They become an overhead Uh, They get cut, they're not effective, and they need to move on. We've been there before, many years ago. We did something sort of similar. So if we don't want to fail, we're going to need to find a way to help these executives that are coming from different backgrounds, right? Yeah. Well, I think there's several um, facets to to that question uh, that I'd like to uh, pull apart a little bit. So one, I think that um, certainly we don't have enough people in the executive ranks with this kind of background. And we need to offer curricula that that helps those folks. And it can't be uh, three to five year long doctoral programs. (laughs) They don't have time for that. And so, yes, (laughs) we need things that move more quickly than that. So as a, you know, an academician, I am always thinking about degree programs and, and that, and the value that they offer because they do have the unique capacity for what I think is um, bringing theory and practice together in ways that training doesn't, um, because training doesn't really focus on theory um, as much as an educational experience. And so I think that some of the models that are coming out now that are, um, you know, offered through various platforms and, and institutions, schools for lifelong learning or experiential learning or extension schools, whatever they're called, where they take um, some of the principles of theory to practice and com- combine them with the theories of professional development and, and offer shorter bite-sized chunks of content and curriculum is, is what I think is ideal. And so, you know, you see a lot in our language of postmaster cert- certificates and those kinds of things that might be three or four courses. I, I do think breaking those down into smaller chunks, you know, courses for us is usually three to five credits. I think smaller chunks of credits, you know, put together so that people can jump right into the one credit of what they feel they need um, and, and work through an experience like that, um, you know, lines up all of my values and, and the values that I've seen in my life um, the best. And so I think a lot of, a lot of places are starting to do that, um, including us, you know, looking at those kinds of curriculum that are, that are shorter. And they don't forget about the theory because I think it's really important what you say that, you know, we do it today and then we'll forget about it in a year because what we, I think what we really want from this group of people is not just the skills they need today, but the ability to acquire new skills over a lifetime. And that's what learning uh, the theories and evaluating those theories, I hope you learned, you got that in your DBA um, (laughs) as an alum from us, is not just what you needed when you graduated and what was relevant then, but an ability to take that kind of thinking and apply it to new situations so that you are someone who can influence people for the rest of your life. That's absolutely right. What you've said in terms of developing programs that are small, bite-sized chunks, I think we need that almost like yesterday. We don't have time to wait to develop something in the next three months. These executives are flying blindly. Something needs to be put in place as a matter of urgency so that even if it's just understanding 
equity 101, even if that's just it, so that everybody has a grounding on what it is they're trying to solve. This is actually going to be a very important component of us advancing this solution from that perspective, because if they are successful, we know that in the organizations, not only that, but even among the products of their institutions, we are going to begin to move this forward. They understand what it means. They'll be able to advance the course. So the speed that we can make this happen is going to be very critical. And I don't know whether speed is of the essence on your side. I will hope it is. Well, I, it, we, we agree with you. And so um, for, for our part, in terms of our curriculum, where we're headed is actually through our School for Lifelong Learning. Um, and so this is a new endeavor for us in the last year or so, which is geared around exactly what you're talking about, trying to meet the needs of society and of um, um, our, our workforce partners by offering smaller chunks of content, some for credit, some for not, uh, so some of it's professional and some of it's sort of a hybrid where you can go through the experience as professional development and then with a little bit extra, you, you, you work for credit. So we are working um, on our ideas for how we um, take the concepts that I've talked about that we are applying internally and share them <laughs> more broadly through our School for Lifelong Learning. And so that, that is a key piece. But you said something that I really um, wanted to um, to mention also, uh, as, you, as you were talking about the experience of these executives, and, and I do think as you think about change management, because this is a big change management, one of the first steps in any change management effort is to create a sense of urgency and for people to understand why it's important. And so this goes back to the, the conversation about it being the right thing to do and it, it being good business. And so, um, the sense of urgency around all of those factors lining up is something that you need to create, I think, within businesses to help people understand that, um, that the time is now to get going for good reason. And that sense of urgency hopefully encourages those businesses and, and, and maybe even individuals um, to undertake these kinds of things where they do seek to understand more um, because the urgency has been developed. And so you, you, have, um, you have folks seeking out this knowledge uh, without you know, uh, some kind of uh, incentive program to do that because you've created that sense behind it that we need to do this. It's, it's the right thing to do for us. Absolutely. I want to bring a different spin to this thought process. You mentioned that it will be good to have expertise from different areas, communications, uh, psychology, and what have you. I like that, you know, convergence of uh, thoughts or subject matters. I'm also thinking that we may need to introduce the racial component even to the thought process. Because a communication expert may not necessarily understand the perspective of a black person, a brown person, or a white person. That person may have the, the understanding from their viewpoint, right? I'm white. I understand it from my viewpoint. And I think it should be applicable to everybody, just like history, just like photography. Let me tell you what I learned yesterday. Even the cameras that was developed way back by Kodak, the, the lens were coded to emphasize white colors. So if you're a white person and they're taking a photo of a white person, it works better. 
But if you're taking a picture of a black person, it just looks weird. So if we use that mindset to develop what we're talking about, we cannot just use a mono view of my perspective, this racial perspective, because I'm the SME, I'm the subject matter expert on this subject. We need to look at the different perspective. Yeah, well, I think this is, it goes back to the question of the, the faculty diversity and, and, and also your, your business leadership diversity. I mean, whatever your environment, you know, that um, when you put the same kinds of people in the room with the same sorts of backgrounds and experiences and lenses, you're going to get similar results and you're going to get mono, as you described, viewpoints. And, um, and so I think that, um, you know, the, the sense of urgency around ensuring diversity of thought and a diversity of background and diversity of disciplines is, um, is intertwined. Um, you, you can't sacrifice one for the other, yet you have to really work hard to find ways to, to achieve all those um, perspectives of diversity. And, and you know, it's, it's challenging. I mean, it would be um, ridiculous to say that's an easy endeavor. Um, it's not. Um, and, and so you have to be really careful. Um, and, and you're probably not going to succeed. I mean, that's the bottom line is you have to recognize that. And so you have to also be willing to, to say, I missed it. I, I messed up here. And um, we missed some viewpoints and we need to be willing to accept those viewpoints and iterate. Um, I mean, one thing about the world today is it's a lot easier to iterate on things than it once was. I mean, backspace, <laughs> type again. I mean, you know, like... <laughs> And, and so I think we just need to be willing to say that, um, you know, we went into it with, um, with all good intention, all the points we, we had and came out with something, but, um, but, but be willing to accept that you missed one. And, and feedback is a gift, right? I mean, sometimes it can be hard. It may, it may not always be the gift you want, but, um, but I think if you look at it that way and, and you, again, go back to this idea of listening, that when you look at feedback as a way to open your heart and open, open your mind, then, um, then it opens yourself up to the kind of iteration around these, these concepts. And I mean, I, when we first offer this curriculum, it will need to be improved. I, I guarantee it. The second time we offer it, I'm, Right. And I've taught classes semester over semester in my lifetime and never once did I teach it the same. I mean, it's, it's never the same. And, and then after a while you improve, you improve, you improve, and then you just throw the whole thing out and you say, I got to start over because this is your best effort all along. Um, And so I think if, if you're the kind of person who's willing to, 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 to open yourselves up, yourself up like that. And if you create an organization that has a culture that's willing to open itself up like that to, to that kind of um, acceptance of feedback, uh, willingness to accept that you, you, you're not going to be perfect and iterate that, um, that people will, will um, continue to engage with you. I mean, that's the, the engagement piece is what you need. And so when people come to you and you give you this feedback and you ignore them and you don't incorporate it or, you know, they see that example and then they stop engaging and then you stop your ability to improve. And so, again, I, I think listening is just so important. And um, if, if the world right now were a, a lot better at listening, the world would be a lot better. <laughs> 
I totally agree with you. Absolutely. And I think along what you're saying is just being vulnerable to make changes as we go along. The podcast is named Reimagining Black Relations. There was a Black relation today. We need to reimagine what it needs to be like because it's not working. That's what we're saying. You build something very quickly. There's a lot of risk there because you won't have all the thoughts process that needs to go into it. But we need to have something to start moving with. So I'm really excited to hear what you're doing and what you're describing and just understanding your perspective. We're almost out of time, but I must ask you, if you're standing on a global platform and you need to speak to a predominantly white audience, what would you tell them? I read an article. I, I have to credit the New York Times with this. Um, and and I, I may even be misremembering it, but I'm going to tell you what I got from it. Dear white people, stop talking and start listening. And my dear white people was stop talking and start listening. And I love what you said just a minute ago about being vulnerable. Um, because that makes you vulnerable, certainly. Um, and that's scary. But um, I think we have to open ourselves up to that stop talking, start listening, be vulnerable. Because until we're vulnerable, um, I don't think we're, we're going to make great progress. And so um, I will credit wh whoever the author was of that article for, um, for leaving something with me that I think is really important. And I'm trying very hard to exercise in my, in my, daily, um, in my daily being is to, if, you know, it's hard to person these days um, <laughs> to, to actually listen. But you can listen to reading. And you can listen through engaging um, in forums that you wouldn't necessarily have engaged in previously, even if it's just to go watch or go listen and um, explore a different kind of book club than one you've been in before. Um, read a newspaper you haven't read before or a magazine or join a Facebook group, whatever, whatever your thing is, however you engage with people these days <laughs> in the times and times when it's really hard to engage with people. Find a way to listen and, um, and really listen, not fake listen like you described. Um, and so for some people, I think um, this opportunity we have right now where we're a little isolated could actually be a gift. Um, you don't have to react to others necessarily any, in, this, in where we are today. The only person you have to engage with really is yourself. And so if, if you can really... Um, uh, take a moment to to engage in one of those practices where where you're trying to really listen and understand someone else's point of view. It doesn't have to be adversarial. The only person you have to talk to is yourself right now. Um, so maybe that's a gift too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Indeed. I agree with you. Totally. Thank you. Could you say something to black people as well? Yeah, um, I think that uh, what I would say there is, and, and, and I have said in, in some, some forums is, um, I get it when you roll your eyes at us because of exactly what you've said, Francesca. We've been here before. We've heard this, we've seen it, and I don't believe you. Um, I don't trust you because it's an old record, you know, it's on skip and you know, it just keeps going round and round. And this is the turn and I know what's going to happen because it's going to be a lot of this followed by a lot of nothing. And, and so what I say uh, to you is um, 
I get it. And I'm not going to try to change that. The only with words, the only way to change it is with actions. And so um, it's time to move from rhetoric to, to action. And I don't expect you to believe me until there is action. And, um, and until then, I, I hope that you'll be skeptical because it, it will it will make us all better. That is powerful, Sue. Very powerful. And it's very moving. I want to thank you for uh, coming on. And I just want to give you a minute. If there's any parting words you want to share that I did not ask you. Well, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to have conversation. My day is so busy with spreadsheets and reports and meetings and um, a, a lot of, um, you know, reading of this and that and pulling and um, just the chance to sit and engage in meaningful dialogue is um, the highlight of my week. So thank you so much for that opportunity. So we really appreciate your coming on Reimagining Black Relations, in particular that you've taken time out of your busy schedule to share your thoughts on this very difficult but necessary topic. I hope you'll come back again. So covered different perspectives in the higher ed and their role and plans to set the future for the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Their plans for bite-sized instructions in DEI to immediately prepare the executives and the openness to continue tweaking until the results are sustainable and appropriate is actually really very desirable. She was an incredible contributor. So what are the critical points? Now, first, we're going to go to the higher ed professionals and DEIs. Uh, the first point she said is become a critical listener. And I think everyone can actually benefit from this one. Secondly, she said to develop a curriculum in critical listening, academic resources need to be pulled from communication, psychology, and sociology interchanging at appropriate times between convergence and divergence of thought. She recommended shorter curriculums and opportunities for lifelong learning on the subject. She also mentioned diversity of thoughts, background, and discipline when developing the curriculum. Finally, build in appropriate iterations and engagement to master the skills. To non-Black, she was very direct. First, stop talking. Secondly, start listening. And finally, be vulnerable. Though scary, without it, there is no progress. And to Blacks, she was quite direct as well. She said she gets it when you roll your eyes because we've been this route before and here we are again. Secondly, she said it's okay if you're skeptical. And thirdly, she said she doesn't expect you to believe non-Blacks until there is action backing up the words. Sue, thank you so very much for coming on Reimagining Black Relations. To all our listeners, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, families, and colleagues, and encourage them to subscribe on yourblackmatters.com. Also, if you have any feedback, please email me at francesca at yourblackmatters.com. Francesca is F-R-A-N-C-E-S-C-A at yourblackmatters.com. Sue, thank you for your contribution to the history we're making together. I'm excited to be a part of it. God bless you and your family. To all our listeners, may God bless you as well. And may the Lord bless the United States of America. See you next time. Bye-bye.